I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Following the November election, the transition in power to a new president hasn't been smooth. In this episode of Q&A, we invited two historians, Susan Shulton and Eric Rochway, to talk about two of the most contentious presidential transitions in U.S. history. First, in 1861 between James Buchanan and Abraham Lincoln, and the 1933 transition between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. Historian Susan Shulton, our country has experienced several fraught presidential transitions, but the 1860 transition between James Buchanan and Abraham Lincoln is described by various historians as contentious, tumultuous, rough, dangerous, and even the worst in history. What made it so? Well, I think on the face of it, what you have to recognize is this is by far the most consequential election and transition in American history. Um, The central issue, of course, is that uh, several Southern states did not recognize the election of Abraham Lincoln as legitimate. They considered him a sectional president uh, for the fact that, um, by and large, his support came from non-slave states. And so no sooner had he been elected than South Carolina makes good on its promise to proceed toward seceding from the Union on the grounds that the election did not represent its interests. Well, let's uh, set the stage for the transition between the two men with the incumbent. James Buchanan had announced at his swearing-in that he would be a one-term president. Uh, We do a regular presidential leadership survey, and James Buchanan always falls at the bottom of the list as (laughs) the worst leader in uh, American presidential history. How would you characterize his leadership skills and how he conducted his administration and how how he left the country as it moved toward the 1860 election? Yes, and it does seem to be the way uh, historians assess him, in large part, of course, because the next thing we know is the Civil War. Um, And so it feels a little bit uh, like a categorical characterization of him. But you're right that his administration came under a lot of criticism. He was fairly openly sympathetic to the pro-slavery interests of the South. Um, He championed the Dred Scott decision, which many Americans felt like was a complete Um, abdication of leadership and a betrayal of the interests that drove the Republican Party around the abolition of slavery in the West. Um, And I think he really earns that number one spot in terms of how he conducts the transition. And that is a way in which he openly rejects secession. He believes in the union, but he also consistently says over and over and publicly that he has no power to prevent the uh, southern states from leaving. And so he sets up this real problem that secession is wrong, but I'm not going to do anything about it. So in your analysis of it, it's less uh, ineptitude on his part, or rather it's more ineptitude or an interpretation of his powers as president than it is a a sympathy towards the South and and wanting to undo uh, what the voters had had actually chosen in 1860. I think that's fair. He doesn't believe the election is illegitimate. Um, he is frustrated by the Republican Party, and he openly blames the Republican Party for the crisis. In other words, the first public statement he makes after the election is his address to Congress in early December, and the entire country is riveted on that. And in that address, he's very caustic. He blames Northern Republicans, abolitionists, for the fact that Southern states are thinking about seceding. 
And so that feels like an abdication of responsibility. He, it feels like he make, is making the crisis worse rather than toning it down. How are we to interpret the fact that his party, the Democrats, actually nominated two candidates in 1860? Well, <laughs> that sort of seals the deal. When, this, when the Democrats meet in Charleston in the sweltering heat of the summer of 1860, the convention falls apart. And of course, it falls apart on the issue of slavery. Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats can't see eye to eye. They're both sympathetic to slavery in terms of the, the wings of the party, but they cannot... Southern Democrats are not satisfied that Stephen Douglas, the Northern nominee, is enough pro-slavery. And so they walk out of that convention. And so anyone who's paying attention to party politics in the summer of 1860 can see that the election of Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans has just gotten a tremendous boost of likelihood. What about the Republicans that year? This was only the second time that they had actually uh, advanced a presidential candidate uh, to the election. How united were they as a party going into the election? That's a terrific question, because I think it's crucial for viewers to understand, as you just reminded them, that this is only the second time the Republican Party has mounted a presidential ticket. We're talking about a party that's five years old and uh, going from losing its first effort in 1856 to winning in its second. Uh, Many people know that Lincoln was not the favorite candidate at the Republican convention in Chicago. He was known as the dark horse. And he um, has a strategy that I really quite like. He's everyone's second favorite. And he also crucially doesn't alienate anyone. And so the leaders uh, or the presumed leaders one by one are unacceptable to other wings. So, for instance, you have um, border states or what I might call more conservative Republicans who find someone like Seward who's fairly openly, aggressively anti-slavery, unacceptable. But Lincoln is the one who can bring all of them together. And you also hint at something. After that election, forefront in Lincoln's mind is not just staffing his cabinet and dealing with the crisis, but unifying this new party. And that is no mean feat. So uh, was the election really only fought on that single issue, the preservation of the union and the future of slavery? Yeah, I think it really does come down to that. There are, of course, other issues that are um, evergreen in American politics in the 19th century, but that is the key. And the key element of it, of course, is not just slavery, but slavery in the territories. It's a referendum on that issue. So let's look at the results on Election Day, because, again, there were four candidates. And we should remind people that at that time, only white males had the opportunity to vote in the United States. Uh, He won the election with a clear majority in the Electoral College, 180 electoral votes, and and carried 18 states. What are the things to know behind those numbers? Uh, The thing that my students always find the most remarkable is that he wins 40 percent of the popular vote. Only 40 percent. Yes, and that's a a statistic that deep Southern um, Democrats tout as an absolute... uh, definitive judgment on the illegitimacy of the election. Did uh, Southern voters take part or did they sit it out because they saw it as a a sectional election? Well, that's an interesting question because most Southern states do participate in the typical way. uh, And in the deepest states, the deepest Southern states, the states that are most dependent on slavery, the Southern Democrat, the most ardent pro-slavery party or choice in that election wins. So you can see some contours that have everything to do with slavery, but also the pattern of secession that will occur after the election. If uh, the fact that he only received 40 percent of the popular vote 
is interesting to your students. How about this? The fact that if you tallied all other three candidates together, they didn't equal Lincoln's numbers. So why, why is that also important in him setting the stage for having a, a mandate? That's a wonderful observation because we do a lot with the data in the 1860 election with my students. And they say, ah, the problem was that it was a four-way election. The problem was that the Democrats split. That's just part of the problem. Um, the fact is that this is a fragmented election. But even as you said, if the Constitutional Union, Northern and Southern Democrats banded together, Lincoln still would have prevailed. I think the key there is to understand that the electoral strength is moving in a certain direction that has to do with population trends in this country. Right now, as we are wondering what will happen with the Senate majority in the outcome of the 2020 election, how did Congress fare for Abraham Lincoln in 1860? He does well. The Republicans do well. Of course, again, it's very, very sectional, um, but it gives him a strong, what I would call, mandate. The other thing to consider about Congress is that after South Carolina secedes, after the troubles um, that push the other deep South states to leave, one by one, those representatives in Congress leave. And so you've got an election where the Republicans do well, and then over secession winter, winter that's compounded by the fact that deep Southern pro-secession, pro-slavery representatives are leaving the Capitol. And so what that makes possible is a Republican uh, agenda that might not otherwise have been possible. So for instance, Lincoln doesn't face the kind of scrutiny and opposition and delay in his cabinet that he might if there was a full democratic strength opposition party. And also toward the end of Buchanan's administration, it makes it possible to bring in Kansas as a free state and a whole host of new territories, including the territory of Colorado. So the, the country is simultaneously shrinking and also growing. It's remarkable. Would you spend a minute talking about the journalism of the time and how they supported the candidates or the causes? It was an age of, of highly partisan media and a time when people read only what they're interested in, what their interests were, which again has some parallels to what we're seeing today in the country. Yeah, that's a wonderful observation. When you say partisan media, uh, you mean it quite literally, that most newspapers were party organs. And so you have um, all through the uh, secession winter and the interregnum before uh, elections and sorry Lincoln's inauguration, you see all kinds of attention. What is Lincoln saying this week? Um, why isn't he saying something on X? What is Buchanan saying? And all that, all of it is filtered through your political identity. I cannot stress that enough, that in some ways it's so resonant with what we're seeing today that from November to March, people saw through events through the lens of their own party. I wanted to clarify one thing about the process because we're still we're in an era when the inaugurations happen in March. Did the new Congress also elected in November start in March or did they take they begin their session in January? Uh, they actually don't come back into session until July. It creates an enormous problem. So, as you said, this is before the 20th Amendment, so we still have presidents inaugurated in March. And I want to impress that on your listeners, because uh, think about what an interminable period that secession winter was from the first Tuesday in December till the first uh, week of March. A seemingly endless period where the country is on a knife's edge. And when Lincoln is inaugurated, Congress is not in session and won't be back in session until July. 
And that creates all kinds of problems because Lincoln has to face some of the first crises around Fort Sumter. He raises a militia without the permission of Congress. That becomes an area in which he's scrutinized in part because Congress isn't in session. So you told us that James Buchanan made a speech to the nation shortly after the election. Uh, what happened with him? Did he stay in Washington for the rest of the time uh, of uh, the transition? And was he vocal during much of that time? He does stay in Washington. And of course, the Buchanan scholars have pointed out that all he really wants to do is go back to Pennsylvania. <laughs> he's very old. He, I think he's one of the oldest presidents at that time and very much looking um, to step away. But he is there for the crisis. And as I said, he's sending mixed messages. He is on the one side saying that secession is absolutely illegal and on the other side not doing anything. And there's some real consequences to that, not least of which is that in that long interregnum before Lincoln is inaugurated and someone who takes a stronger federal stand, southern states are taking control of federal forts and garrisons, federal property. Um, that means that the Confederacy, when it does amalgamate and form and go to war, is stronger than it otherwise might have been. So Buchanan's action or inaction, as you might put it, has consequences. Why would a sitting president not use federal troops to defend federal garrisons? Well, I think the real question is whether he's violating state rights. Uh, and whether he actually has the power to do that. And he does send the Star of the West in early January um, to uh, the off the coast of South Carolina to sort of reinforce that. But um, they are fired on by South Carolinians and they retreat. Now, that action in early January is responsible for that second wave, if you will. So first you have South Carolina at Christmas declaring itself out of the Union. And right after that little conflagration where the Union, if you will, pulls back from using force. You have the rapid, um, in rapid succession, deep Southern states joining South Carolina to form the Confederacy. So Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, and Louisiana. We, we talked about what James Buchanan did. Abraham Lincoln stayed in his home city of Springfield, Illinois. Uh, how visible was he during this period? He's visible locally, for sure. And he takes visitors. Um, there's a, you can imagine the number of requests for patronage or staffing or jobs uh, or, or favors, things like that. A lot of well-wishers as well. Um, but the interesting thing is that this is where Lincoln is scrutinized. In other words, I would say that for a long time, Civil War scholars really looked at this period and thought, why didn't Lincoln do more? Why didn't he reach out more? Why didn't he placate the Deep South more? And he's come to be described as deploying a kind of masterly inactivity. In other words, he's very careful about what he says. He does speak, um, but he doesn't speak about slavery. And what he repeatedly says is, my record stands for itself. And what he means there, Susan, is that on many issues, he is open to hearing suggestions. He wants to halt the momentum of secession. But there is one issue on which he is absolutely inflexible. And that is the founding principle of the party that elected him. Congress has not just the right, but the obligation to forbid slavery from spreading into the territories. All eyes were, were on his cabinet selections uh, during that period of time. And he did a lot of interviewing of people at, in, in Springfield. Uh, what was 
what was he trying to do with the cabinet that he was assembling, and how was it viewed by partisans on both sides of this issue? Uh, I think he's trying to create balance. Um, the Republican Party is a fragile coalition, as you implied earlier. Um, it's got ardent um, anti-slavery elements. It's got former Whigs who are perhaps a little more tentative about um, really augmenting a quasi-abolitionist position. And those folks don't always get along together, right? That the, uh, the convention in Chicago showed off some of those divisions. And so Lincoln is very, I think, carefully reaching out to certain types of people, including Preston Blair, a more conservative uh, Republican from Missouri, a border state, a slave state, as well as William Seward from New York, who, as I think, represents a little bit more of the ardent anti-slavery wing. Although in the Senate, Seward is very much trying to create compromise. So it, it's complicated. It's also a, a cabinet that <laughs> has gone down in history by Civil War scholars as choosing one of the more unfortunate individuals, Simon Cameron, who was known for uh, being an open grifter when it came to um, corruption and fraud, um, but he was someone to placate interests of uh, Pennsylvania. Well, Lincoln was uh, in Springfield, Illinois. Did he use any uh, allies in Washington, in the Capitol, to help advance his is issues or even to reach out to the Buchanan uh, administration? Great question. And it's not just in Washington, but around the country. So he, um, uh, his fellow Senator Lyman Trumbull is uh, a close colleague, um, someone who had bested him in the race for the Senate in several years earlier, but who's now a kind of key emissary. And to your point, he uses individuals like Trumbull to kind of telegraph messages. Uh, I don't mean that literally, but I mean through emissaries into Washington. Because in Washington, from the moment of the election until I would say mid-February, there is a frantic, frantic effort to stave off secession, to end the crisis, and to reach some kind of compromise. The other thing that I think is fascinating, and my students absolutely love this, is that in this time, December and January, Lincoln is also writing to his former colleagues from Congress, John Gilmer in North Carolina, Alexander Stevens in Georgia, who becomes the vice president of the Confederacy. These are men he trusts. And in the case of Alexander Stevens, this is a man who openly criticizes disunion. Stevens says to his fellow Southerners, this is not the way to get what we want. We are safer in the Union than out of the Union. So in my mind, Lincoln is reaching out very strategically. It doesn't work out. Um, obviously, North Carolina and Georgia joined the Confederacy, um, but he is putting out those feelers to try to push things in a certain direction. But here, as you're talking, uh, another interesting contrast between the incumbent and the incoming presidents, because James Buchanan was perhaps the most experienced politician of the era. He had held almost every post you can think of before ascending to the presidency. Abraham Lincoln, one failed Senate <laughs> campaign and one term in Congress. So uh, it, it, what do you make of the difference in political skills between the two without the requisite experience behind it. You know, that I was reflecting on that this morning. I, I thought to myself, man, uh, Abraham Lincoln would have a tough time today in the experience <laughs> realm, right? He wouldn't fare very well as one-term congressman who considers himself a failure and goes back to practicing law in Springfield. Uh, that's a tough one because um, Lincoln's estimation, of course, grows in hindsight. 
One thing that we fail to appreciate was how much criticism Lincoln received during the war, uh, throughout the war, from different camps, uh, obviously hated in many parts of the South, um, but also deeply resented by Democrats in the North for provoking a war that was unnecessary, if you will, for ignoring overtures to peace. So we consider Lincoln a masterful politician, right? He remains the one that people, um, not, just, not just historians, but leadership types, all communication uh, scholars, everyone takes from Lincoln what they will. But much of that, of course, is because we know the outcome of the story. In setting the stage for his administration, Lincoln decided to embark on a 13-day train trip from Springfield, Illinois to Washington. Tell our listeners a bit about that story because it, it brought out crowds at nearly every stop and he interacted with the public along the way. How important was that in setting the tone for his presidency? That's a good question because it, it's a kind of symbolic move. Uh, you raise a good point. It's a long, long train ride w- winding from Illinois um, through the uh, upper, what we would now call the upper Midwest um, toward the Atlantic and then down into Washington. Um, not a lot of consequential speeches happen along the way. Uh, those speeches are scrutinized and because of the telegraph can be reprinted or reported upon. People are paying close attention to where he is. But it's more of a kind of, um, I would say, a symbolic tour where he is uh, sort of doubling down on the meaning of the union, um, on the, the, the fact that this country is more than just an amalgamation of states. It has a higher purpose. That, of course, is an element of Lincoln's thinking that is front and central and front and center in the inauguration, that this country has a purpose, right? It is more than just uh, a, a nation as such or a union as such. While he was um, but working on teams, ahead. he was also bringing out crowds as, as large as 50,000 people at some of the stops in a, a much less populated country. So it, it had to also build excitement for among his supporters, which would be useful in dealing with Congress and, and his own goals going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. And then famously, and I forget which, uh, it's not Philadelphia where he visits Independence Hall, but someplace along the way, there's a young girl who meets him and writes him a letter suggesting that he might look good with a beard. <laughs> and that's the, that's the beginning of that. And shows he takes advice, right? From <laughs> That's right. He's open to suggestions, as he always says. It's been uh, well documented that on the last leg of that trip that Abraham Lincoln survived an assassination plot. Uh, who was behind that? And second question is, did President Buchanan respond in any way to that attempt? Uh, my... I have limited knowledge in that area. I don't have any record of Buchanan responding. Um, It was a Pinkerton agent um, who brought the information to uh, Lincoln and his people that there was a heightened risk, particularly in Baltimore. Um, And this is something that's really interesting because after the inauguration, after the crisis at Fort Sumter, Lincoln needs to call up those troops, the militia. And the ones who march through Baltimore are assaulted And I want you to think about that for a second. Maryland is a state that remains in the Union, despite the fact that it's a slave state. But the the sympathies in Maryland in the early months of the war were openly hostile to the Union and openly pro-Confederate. And you see that in the way they treat the Union soldiers. So there's been a lot of debate about how um, substantial those threats uh, against Lincoln's life were. Um, But later behavior shows us that uh, it was not, a peaceful thing to be marching through Baltimore on the way to the Capitol. 
Uh, of course, the upshot is, is that Lincoln endures all kinds of grief as a kind of coward who slinks into Washington because he's trying to get around those assassination threats. So let's move to Inauguration Day. What do we know about President Buchanan's uh, outreach to his successor? Was he cordial? Was he welcoming to the new president? Uh, To my mind, it was a perfectly cordial handoff. I don't actually know the details of Buchanan's behavior that day. Buchanan had been frustrated with Lincoln because he had reached out during that presidential elect period. And Lincoln had of course, not much interest in um, and not much to gain by responding to uh, those overtures. We found a a clip in our video archives of the actor Sam Waterston reading the last paragraph of Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. There's always so much attention on the second, but let's listen to the themes that he struck as he closed his inaugural uh, address in 1861 and have you come back and talk about, again, setting the tone Uh, even though we know about the consequences of what would happen next. Let's listen. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, It must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Susan Chilton, what was he saying there and how was it received? Oh, that speech is is just so rich. Uh, You could spend weeks on it with students because there's so many dimensions. The first thing I want to go back to is what you remarked on earlier, how deeply polarized the country had become by March 4th, 1861. And so for Northerners, uh, that speech um, is seen in one way as an overture, as an olive branch, as um, essentially saying the ball's in your court, Southerners and secessionists, we are not provoking. And yet by Southerners, it was seen uh, pretty clearly as an assertion of federal power. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The most important thing I think about that speech is that Lincoln holds his ground and asserts the primacy of the Union. He says secession is anarchy. It is impossible. And what he means there is that states cannot opt out of the union. The union is something larger than the states. It's older than the Constitution. It's older than the Declaration. In other words, there's a spirit that animates the union. And so secession doesn't make any sense. States don't exist outside of the union. So there's a new kind of constitutional ideal for what the nation will be in terms of its um, organic whole. Uh, And Lincoln is committed to that. Of course, he's willing to uh, fight and um, expend a lot of lives in service to that. But he also makes clear, Susan, that there are many things on which he will compromise. He is even willing to consider a constitutional amendment to protect slavery where it exists. But he will not 
compromise on the extension of slavery into the territories. And so the upshot of that speech really is to Southern secessionists, you are complaining because you lost an election, but nothing else has happened. And as we know, one month later, on April 12th, 1861, the Civil War got underway. As we close here, um, I guess some perspective about this, we're looking at two difficult presidential transitions, consequential, as you said, in in this case, because it almost was the end of the Union. But are there uh, any specific lessons for what the country is going through today? That one's tough. And I want to be modest and a little bit humble here that we occupy a radically different world 150 years later in terms of the speed of information, in terms of the size of the country. Uh, I hope that 1860 is not 2020. Um, And I think that the kind of divisions that the country was facing in 1860 were ones where ideology was layered on top of geography. In other words, there, which is not to say the war was inevitable, but which, which w- was to say that the fissures were much clearer than I think they are today. Historian Susan Shelton chairs the University of Denver History Department. Her latest book is called The History of America in 100 Maps. Thank you for spending time with us and giving us some perspective on presidential transitions of the past. Thank you, Susan. In our next half hour, we continue our look at contentious presidential transitions with the 1932 election when incumbent Republican Herbert Hoover lost in the landslide to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We begin with his inaugural address, FDR's that is, in 1933. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. Primarily, this is because the rulers of the exchange of mankind's goods have failed through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence. Historian Eric Rauchway, we are talking about historic, difficult transitions between presidents of opposing parties, and you literally wrote a book about one of those, Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash Over the New Deal. Set the stage for us about the state of the country uh, during which this first transition into FDR's presidency took place. During the uh, election year of 1932, the Great Depression reached its depth. So you had unemployment that was approaching, if not quite reaching. Uh, One in four workers were without jobs. Many more people were underemployed. You had, as Roosevelt said there in the clip that you just uh, used, uh, a situation where prices for agricultural commodities had dropped so low, it was often not worth it even for farmers to harvest them and send them to market. And so farmers were going out of business and losing their farms, the mortgages. So you had people who were literally going hungry in many parts of the country and food that wasn't worth it to sell in other parts of the country. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the economy had essentially invisibly broken and therefore not only had capitalism, commerce reached a situation of crisis. So indeed had democracy. People began to lose faith that their government would do for them what they needed doing. And that was the atmosphere 
uh, as the uh, nation approached the election in November of 1930. And what was happening internationally? Well, internationally, the situation was much the same. The Great Depression, of course, was a global event. It afflicted Europe particularly badly. And Germany had, of course, slid into depression a bit earlier than many other countries. And in response, of course, you saw the rise of the Nazi party to power. Adolf Hitler had gained enough votes in the elections of 1932 that very shortly in January of 1933, he would be able to broker a deal that would make him chancellor. Imperial Japan was, of course, on the march abroad and was about to leave the League of Nations over the uh, episode in Manchuria. And therefore, the international order, as then was, was falling apart. What uh, you said people were losing faith in the, in the democracy, democratic process. What was the situation like on Election Day? What percentage of eligibles actually voted and what were the results like? I don't know off the top of my head what voter turnout was on Election Day. Was it a um, resounding the, uh, was it a resounding defeat for Hoover's policies and a resounding plus yeah. for a, a new direction? That's really the point of the question. Right. The uh, the election nineteen thirty two was uh, a, definitely an ideological one where Roosevelt promised a new deal and under that heading promised all manner of things, but most notably a massive public works program, promised price supports for agriculture, promised old age pensions and unemployment insurance, and so not only a recovery program from the Depression, but also a rebalancing of the economy to make it more equitable. And Hoover attacked that program as being socialistic. He said he smelled on it the fumes that re- recently boiled over in Russia. So he was fairly clear about his position and said that he would oppose any such measures were he reelected. And Hoover lost in the landslide. Uh, he only won majorities in six of the then 48 states. And so Roosevelt went on to a resounding victory. Today, we're accustomed to Twitter and insults about candidates being uh, transmitted globally uh, during the campaign. What was the tenor like between the two men in the 1932 election? Uh, Hoover really didn't shy away from explaining that he thought Roosevelt was absolutely unsuited to be president because he belonged, Hoover said, to the radical left wing of the Democratic Party as it then stood, that, that Roosevelt's policies or proposed policies were socialistic in nature, that they would bankrupt the country, that they would crack the timbers of the Constitution, that's a direct quote from Herbert Hoover, that they would negate the ideals on which the American civilization was founded, that sort of thing. So Hoover uh, was very clear that he believed Roosevelt was um, absolutely unfit to be president and that the New Deal would run against everything that had made America great to that point. Um, Roosevelt himself uh, you know, singled out Hoover's administration for criticism, but mostly it was fairly, um, you know, without vitriol because the facts were very much against Hoover at that point in 1932 with unemployment so high and prices so low and a sustained economic crisis for almost the four full years of his administration. I'd like to have our audience hear the two men in their own words. We're going to listen to Herbert Hoover on November 4th. It's really one of his closing pitches to the American public. Uh, November 4th, 1932, four days before the election. Let's listen to what he had to say about the state of the economy. My fellow citizens, from the congressional elections in 1930 down to the present moment, the strategy of the Democratic Party has been an effort to implant in the unthinking mind through deliberate misrepresentation the colossal falsehood that the Republican Party is responsible for this worldwide catastrophe. 
A circular placed in my hands since coming to this state, issued by the Democratic National Committee, says this depression was man-made. I agree with that. But they say the man who made it was myself personally. They express no gratitude that in my manufacture of this world crisis, I have let this country off easier than Russia or Western Europe or South America. What do you hear there in that pitch to voters? Well, I hear the kind of thing that Hoover uh, generally said throughout the campaign, which was that the American people should be thankful for the presence in Washington of a Republican administration that fought for, if it didn't always achieve a balanced budget, that forbore to employ people publicly, though it did so on a small scale, and that mostly used the tariff as a tool to uh, influence the economy. And of course, as he said there, I have let people a lot off, off a lot easier than they have been in Western Europe and in uh, Russia, right? So he pitched himself as the champion of free market capitalism and less interventionist government, and of course represented the Democrats as being the opposite of that. So let's move into the transition period. This is the day after winning the election by a resounding vote from the public, November 9th, 1932. Franklin Roosevelt uh, speaking to the American public. I am glad of this opportunity to extend my deep appreciation to the electorate of this country, which gave me yesterday such a great vote of confidence. It is a vote that had more than mere party significance. It transcended party lines and became a national expression of liberal thought. It means, I am sure, that the masses of the people of the nation firmly believe that there is great and actual possibility in an orderly recovery through a well-conceived and actively directed plan of action. Such a plan has been presented to you and you have expressed approval of it. But it would take, of course, by law, four months for that plan of action to begin. So what happened immediately after the election between the two men? How did the stage get set for such a a difficult four months between them? Uh, Hoover conceded the election, uh, you know, on election day. He really had no choice given the resounding nature of the vote and the way it was reported in the press. And it was clear that he had lost the election. But he never conceded the substance of the argument. He continued to believe that the New Deal, as Roosevelt had framed it during the campaign and began to work towards it after the election, represented a fundamental threat toward the American way of life. And so he devoted himself to preventing Roosevelt from being able to enact it. Now, as you correctly say, this was uh, the last time the uh, president would be inaugurated on March 4th. So there was a long wait uh, before um Roosevelt would be able to take the oath of office for the first time. And during that time, there would be uh, the lame duck Congress, as it was then called, the the Congress that was outgoing would continue to meet. Roosevelt worked with uh, Democratic Party leaders and had his aides work with Democratic Party leaders to try to enact early New Deal measures during this period, most notably a farm relief bill in December of 1932 that closely resembled the Agricultural Adjustment Act that would be enacted once Roosevelt came into office. And Hoover worked to defeat that, to prevent anything like that from being enacted during the period between the election and the inauguration. Hoover, as I say, was opposed on principle 
to New Deal-style legislation. He was quite determined that he was not going to cooperate with any efforts to enact it so long as he retained the power of the presidency. So he lobbied against it. He threatened to veto it. He made it clear that nothing like that would get through the Congress. As he told one of his aides, I don't want the Congress to do anything. I think anything they will do will be bad legislation from our point of view. And so he tried to make sure that nothing would get through the Congress. The first meeting between the two men happened on November 22nd. Uh, Are there any important things to tell about that conversation, where it happened, what the dynamics were between the two of them? Well, this is a case where we only have a few uh, direct sources about what happened during that conversation because there were only four people present. There was Hoover and the then Secretary of the Treasury, Ogden Mills. There was Roosevelt and one of his aides, a man named Raymond Mulley, who was a political scientist, who Roosevelt took along precisely because he wasn't an economist or a businessman and didn't know anything about the economy. And Roosevelt didn't want to signal any particular thing about what his cabinet might be or who might be in it or give anything away as far as his relationship to economic policies. So we have Molly's remarks and we have some of the um, things that Roosevelt had uh, for notes. And we also had Hoover's uh, own sort of testimony as to what happened there. It seems that Hoover tried to use this meeting as a way to demonstrate his mastery of particularly international economic diplomacy and to tell Roosevelt that he could not carry forward with anything like the New Deal, that really he had to go forward with Hoover's program for international economic relief. And he tried to get Roosevelt to agree to and to go in with him on establishing a program for going forward. And what was the outcome of that? Uh, Roosevelt understood, I I think in retrospect we can say correctly, that it would be disadvantageous uh, for him to go in with Hoover on continuing Hoover's policies because he had promised very different policies in the election campaign. And so he politely declined. And there there was a feeling on the Hoover people's part that that was ungracious of Roosevelt not to accept the uh, Republican proposal. How was this playing out in the press at the time? Well, I think people didn't really know what to expect from this kind of situation. As you know, it's it's kind of anomalous in American history, and it's anomalous in world affairs for there to be this sort of long hangover of the outgoing administration where it's got lots that it could do but no real sort of instruction from the voters to do it. It doesn't seem particularly uh, small-D democratic. And indeed, that's why, you know, earlier that year, the Congress had uh, proposed to the states the 20th Amendment that was going to drastically shorten this period of time to what we have today, where the president is inaugurated on January 20th, which is still a long time uh, when you compare it to most democracies in the world. I think, of course, because of the nature of the crisis, which had begun to accelerate late late in the summer of 1932 and get worse. Um, I think people hoped, and certainly reporters reflected that hope, that there would be some kind of policy coming out of this period to address the depression more aggressively, more in keeping with the kind of thing that Roosevelt had promised. Um, But that would have entailed, uh, you know, uh, Hoover sort of giving up on his principles, which he wasn't going to do. In December and January, did the two men make any other attempts to uh, reconcile or at least attempt to work together? Uh, There was a lot of back and forth, and most of it was not particularly um, conciliatory, uh, to borrow your word there. And uh, eventually they began to, uh, Hoover decided he was going to publish some of their snippier uh, exchanges in the press, and that that certainly uh, spoiled things. 
I think, uh, going forward, uh, maybe most notably in February, um, because again, the inauguration isn't going to be till March, Roosevelt uh, was the uh, a subject or the object rather of an assassination attempt uh, in Florida. Uh, he was narrowly missed by uh, the bullets from an assassin's pistol. Uh, and the person near him, the mayor of Chicago, was uh, fatally shot. And uh, Hoover wrote Roosevelt a long letter uh, to address the circumstances as they then were. Uh, Hoover spent a long time drafting this letter. We know that because of the archival uh, record that we have. Hoover tended to draft his letters in pencil and to write them out in longhand and to edit them many times when they were important to him. And he, so he was very carefully drafted this letter to Roosevelt, which congratulated him on escaping death, and then went on uh, for many pages to blame Roosevelt for the current state of the economy and to say that you and you alone, that is Roosevelt and Roosevelt alone, could address the uh, ongoing bank panics and other evidence of the Depression by renouncing his plans for the New Deal. Before we uh, leave that story, is the perpetrator of the assassination attempt uh, uh, important to know in the scheme of how people were responding to the, the tension in the country? Uh, the the, the, the uh, would-be assassin, or the apparently would-be assassin of Franklin Roosevelt was a fellow named Zangara, uh, who was an Italian-American. I don't know that we could say that he, his, uh, his motive bore directly on the situation. That's not really clear. He seems to have been uh, mentally unwell and to have had some uh, hallucinations. He was an Italian-American uh, worker. He had been a registered Republican. There are some people uh, who to this day believe that he wasn't actually trying to shoot Roosevelt, that his uh, uh, intended uh, uh, victim was in fact the mayor of Chicago and that was related to um, internal affairs of the city of Chicago. So I'm not sure it's entirely relevant to the story. So one detail I read in one site about that uh, nine-page letter to FDR is that it actually was transmitted with the misspelled name of Roosevelt. Is that correct? Uh, I think, to be honest, I think that's an uncharitable thing to say for Hoover. I think if you uh, look at the archival uh, um Again, evidence, it's, it's, it may have been written in haste. I, I'm not really sure it was misspelled. So no intent, uh, intended snub there as, as no the story intended. unfolds. So uh, between yeah, February... Sorry, go ahead. There, I was going to say, there, there were many petty uh, exchanges between the two men, but I'm, I'm not really sure that's one of them. So this uh, standoff between the two of them really continued until the inauguration itself. What was the day before the inauguration like? Well, you have to remember that uh, by this time, the depression had deepened into a financial panic. So people were worried that banks, even banks that probably were sound, were going to close their doors and were rushing to withdraw their money from the banks. Many states had already closed the banks to try to prevent this hemorrhaging of funds. And there was a widespread call for a federal bank holiday, that is to say bank closure, so that there could be an auditing of the books and a determining of which banks were sound in an attempt to stop the panic. So banks were collapsing and the Federal Reserve itself was on the brink of collapse because people were also taking their paper money to the Federal Reserve and withdrawing gold in exchange, as you could then do. So there was a massive withdrawal from private banks, also from the Federal Reserve system, and the whole financial system was on the brink of some kind of catastrophe. And as I say, there was an outcry, even among very conservative people, Federal Reserve bankers and lawyers, for the president, still Herbert Hoover, to close the banks. Hoover refused to do that, again, on the principle that it was in the nature of capitalism that you kept the banks open so that the bad ones could go under. And this was a 
regrettable but necessary process. So Hoover refused repeatedly right through to the inauguration to allow the banks to be closed, even when the Federal Reserve ensured that he was delivered an order to do so in the wee hours of the morning on Inauguration Day. Hoover knew by this point that Franklin Roosevelt was going to close the banks immediately upon taking office, that he was going to take the nation off the gold standard to prevent that uh, aspect of the panic, and also to allow him to pursue a policy of inflation. So Hoover knew what Roosevelt was going to do, and he could have preempted uh, Roosevelt by issuing his own order and placing his own restrictions on bank activity. But again, as a matter of principle, he refused to do this. So there was a nature of uh, increasing desperation uh, in the nation, and uh, Hoover himself was increasingly frustrated and upset with the uh, inability to get what he wanted out of the last days of his presidency. As he told an aide at the end of business that day, I, uh, we have reached the end of our strength. So the inauguration itself, Herbert Hoover did attend the inauguration. What was the uh, dynamic like between the two men on that ceremonial day? Uh, well, there's a, there are famous uh, illustrations and uh, uh, photographs of the discomfort but between the two of them, or at least the discomfort on Herbert Hoover's face, as appears evident. He wasn't um, somebody who was sort of visibly warm generally, so I don't think we want to read too much into his demeanor on the day of the inauguration, but he really does look miserable to be there uh, in, in, in his uh, accompanying of Franklin Roosevelt to the inauguration, and he appears to have exited as soon as it was seemly to do so. Roosevelt, of course, uh, was a very charismatic fellow, a very uh, outgoing fellow, and somebody who is um, very good at conveying a spirit of confidence and cheer, uh, had a famously, of course, expansive smile, and that was all on display on Inauguration Day. And Roosevelt had a very sort of confident speaking voice, as we heard, I think, in the clip that you played, and that was certainly uh, evident also in the inaugural address, where, of course, he said you know, specifically addressing the nature of the bank panic and the financial panic, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? We can move forward uh, in removing the money changers from the temple, he said, uh, with our civil of our civilization, if we can only sort of get this panic behind us. Herbert Hoover lived until 1964. Uh, how did he look back on this period of time? Hoover really never stopped campaigning against Franklin Roosevelt, I think it's fair to say. You know, for a time after 1932 and into 1933, he expected to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 1936. That didn't happen. He was widely regarded as uh, a failure. He did begin to write, though, immediately after uh, the first year of the New Deal, books explaining why, again, the New Deal ran counter to the basic principles of American civilization and that the way forward for the Republican Party was to make clear that the New Deal was antithetical to the things uh, for which the Republicans stood, that being an anti-New Deal party was going to be the way forward for uh, the Republicans. And he, at first, didn't gain a lot of traction with his fellow Republicans who tried to accommodate themselves in one way or another to the New Deal. And so he felt kind of like a unheard prophet for many years. But by the time you got into the 50s and the early 60s, 
There began to be a group of Republicans like Barry Goldwater, like Richard Nixon, who really regarded Hoover's anti-New Dealism as the essence of what the Republican Party should become. So by the time he died, when Goldwater was campaigning for the presidency, he didn't quite live to see the election, right? He really did live to see his principles enshrined at the uh, core of the Republican Party. So... uh if we look at this, first of all, to, to note again that one year later, the 20th Amendment was ratified, shortening the inauguration and setting the date at January 20th, something the administration urged the states to ratify. But if we look at this as uh, having any parallels with what the country is going through right now, where would you see them? Well, the time is short. Uh shorter than it was in 1932, 1933. On the other hand, things move a lot quicker these days, and the presidency is a much more powerful institution than it was then, largely as a result, of course, of Roosevelt's presidency during both the New Deal and the war. So the current occupant of the White House can do a lot more uh, in a short time than Herbert Hoover could have done back in 1932, 1933. We are, of course, in the middle of a great crisis, and it seems like it is the management of that crisis or the mismanagement of that crisis that led to the defeat of the incumbent, which is usually, you know, which is an unusual thing in American political history. But we have a long time to go yet till, uh, you know, a new policy of managing the pandemic can be implemented by an incoming administration. And it looks like the outgoing administration has no intention of making way for that shift in crisis management, and indeed quite the opposite. Rather like Herbert Hoover, they oppose it on principle and appear to be uh, persuaded that they will continue on their course uh, as vigorously as they have to this point. When you looked at the impact of the standoff, which as you've described it was both ideological and really personality driven, they were very different kinds of people. So it was emotional and personal as well as ideological. When you look back at at that period of time in your research, uh, what were your conclusions about how things might have been different if the two had actually found a way to work together? Well, when we look at the data on the recovery from the Great Depression, it begins immediately upon Roosevelt taking office in March of 1933. And generally, economic historians don't think that that's a coincidence. They think that's because of Roosevelt spurring inflationary expectations. That is to say, creating amongst Americans the idea that prices are going to go up. That, of course, creates an incentive for people to have who have money to spend it because it's going to fall in value. And of course, once they begin spending money, then people begin to have jobs to uh, produce things, which is what turns things around. And you can see production indices rising immediately in March 1933. So if that's what was the thing that spurred the recovery, then we can say that that could have happened quite a bit earlier had Hoover gone along in some way or other with Roosevelt's program, with the farm bill to boost farm prices, for example, or with a policy of inflating the currency, any of those things really could have spurred that recovery earlier. And if that recovery had begun earlier, that's a lot more people who wouldn't have lost their savings, their jobs, or in a time of starvation, even their lives. So another question about uh, transitions then and transitions now as we close out here. So in addition to the 20th Amendment passing, by 1964, the Presidential Transitions Act, where the legislation was passed to put some more order and to begin to pay for uh, this for, through the federal government. Uh, and I'm wondering if you look uh, with this long lens of history about the changes that were necessary to make transitions between presidencies work more smoothly, especially ideological changes or party changes, 
Are there any changes that could be made to our system as it's structured now that would facilitate a change in power and make it work better for the nation? Well, apparently the thing that uh, needs to happen is to clarify that these changes are in the hands of a non-political civil service, um, which is a cause associated with uh, Franklin Roosevelt's distant cousin Theodore, right, which we still really don't quite have, apparently, uh, in the federal government, at least not at the highest levels. There's a stipulation, as I'm sure you know, in that Transition Act that uh, funds be allocated to the president-elect as soon as the head of the General uh, Services Administration ascertains uh, who that is. And uh, there's no real stipulation about how that ascertainment needs to be made or what are the objective criteria for it. So I think there need to be some uh, clearer and less political ways to make those kinds of ascertainments so that it's smooth transitions going forward. Dr. Eric Rauchaway wrote the book on the 1932-33 transition between Herbert Hoover and FDR. It's called Winter War, Hoover, Roosevelt, and the First Clash over the New Deal. Thank you for giving us some historical context to presidential transitions as the country works its way through this one. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.